Welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Cossie. I'm the pastor here. I'm glad that you're here today. We're kicking off a new series called Heroes. And uh, this series is essentially about that drive inside of us, that stirring inside of us that gets caught up with the hero stories. Uh, the two top grossing films this year so far have been hero stories. In the, just the span of a couple of weeks, movies have broken the billion dollar mark. And the thing that they all have in common is that there's a storyline about a hero. Now, I like asking those kind of questions. I, I, tend to, I tend to find myself thinking about things a lot. And I've always wondered, why are we so drawn to hero stories? Why can a story about a hero draw a crowd and, and, and cause us to spend money to watch it over and over and over again? I mean, one of the top grossing, one of the most famous films of all time, Star Wars, is a hero story. What is it about us that gets caught up in a hero story? It's not just superpowers, although superpowers would be awesome, right? The ability to have uh, ability to fly to skip traffic, right? The ability to read someone's mind so that your marriage is great, right? Those things would be really nice, but it's not even the superpowers that we're drawn to. Uh, this past week, we um, kind of watched a, a hero story spread around the globe. Mamadou Gassimi, who was an immigrant from Mali, He's walking with his girlfriend. He's 22 years old. He's in, only been in Paris for just a few weeks. And as he turns the street in the 18th district, he sees a crowd of people screaming and pointing up. And as he looks up, what he notices is there on the fifth floor, hanging off a balcony, is a little boy, a four-year-old little boy. And he runs across the street, and he begins to scale up the balconies. This little boy, this four-year-old boy, had fallen from the sixth balcony and somehow miraculously grabs a hold of the fifth floor as he's falling. And then Mamadou single-handedly lifts himself without any support, without any strength, a whole crowd of people screaming. And he physically draws himself up to the fifth balcony and pulls the boy to safety with him, with a crowd of people watching and cheering. And what's extraordinary about that moment is that Mamadou wasn't in Paris legally. In the midst of the government situation in Paris, there's a huge crackdown on illegal immigration. And Mamadou was an illegal immigrant. And to, to run across the street to save that boy's life meant that he potentially was putting his life in jeopardy too. But he did it. And in doing it, the world was inspired. Spider-Man in Paris becomes a trending topic that everyone's talking about. This man who was snuck into France illegally, who's staying underneath the curtain, not wanting anyone to notice him, just within 24 hours of that moment is sitting across from the French president. And he's being fast-tracked into citizenship. We're inspired by those kind of moments. We're stirred by people who step out and who are drawn to live out those superhero kind of moments. Uh, in our uh, cupboard at all times is this uh, pack of mix, this uh, muffin mix. And inside this muffin mix, uh, these blueberry muffins is typically what they are. It's this great like emergency mix that we keep that if anyone comes over in the span of a couple minutes, 16 to 21 to be exact, you can have wonderfully tasty Six muffins already ready. But what I love about the mix is how simple it is. I can do it. I pull it out, and I either pour milk or I pour water in. 
It's this just add one ingredient kind of mix. And that one ingredient will take this bag of regular blueberry muffin fluff and turn it into something that's yummy that at the last minute can be thrown together for a quick bite or breakfast. And as I was processing through this series, I realized in some ways, if imagine there's a hero ready mix and it's just sitting there. Would there be an ingredient, one ingredient that you could add to that ready to bake hero mix sitting in a bag? And I think there is. I think there's one essential ingredient that, that you and I have an opportunity to add to the mix of our lives that is essential if we want to become a hero. If we want to make the shift from being spectators, right, who sit and film, to a participant who climbs and heals and saves. I would rather be a participant in that kind of storyline, not a spectator to that kind of storyline. And I don't mean me climbing balconies, because if that had been me, I would have saw me grab hold of the first one, slip and fall, okay? But that lifestyle that says, I want to live my life in a way that makes a difference, not have that make a difference on me. And this essential ingredient that if you were to go and read the interview that Mamadou has, the statement that he makes to the French President Macron, you would find that he mentions this one ingredient. And it's also an ingredient seen in the story in a moment with Jesus and his followers. It's a famous moment, one that I've talked about before. It's an incredible moment, one that maybe for some of you, if you're spiritually searching, you're not even sure if you believe it's true. But this moment is so extraordinary. But in the midst of it, in the midst of it, it's really easy to miss that there was a mix, there was an ingredient added that changed, changed the whole thing. So to kick off our heroes series, I want us to find that one essential ingredient and to look at this moment to discover it together. If you have the app that Jason referenced when you came in, you'll find it in Matthew, uh, in the message notes or in the Bible. This passage has already been preloaded for you. Um, and it's Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. We're going to just kind of work our way through about 11 verses. But in the course of working our way through it, I think you'll discover this one essential ingredient that we can pour into our ready-to-mix and bake hero mix that can transform our lives. So Matthew 14, verse 22, it says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. The crowd is really important. This moment right before this moment is where Jesus, um, who's been teaching and speaking, has gathered large crowds who've started to kind of come and listen to him. The day has gotten long. They haven't eaten. And so what happens is he mentions to his disciples, hey, we should feed these people. They haven't eaten all day and they're going to leave weak. And the disciples are like, well, we don't have the money for that. We don't have the logistics for that. And a little boy steps up and says, hey, um, I've got a few fish and I've got some loaves. And essentially the boy comes with about five McFish sandwiches from McDonald's. I mean, that's essentially what he has. And Jesus says, okay, those five McFish sandwiches, they're just enough. And in the midst of an incredible miracle, he feeds 25,000 people with about five McFish sandwiches. And uh, it says that there were 5,000 gathered that day, but you have to realize that this is in a time period where the way that they would count was by the number of men. There are 5,000 men in that crowd, but there are 25,000 plus people. So this incredible moment has happened. Jesus tells his disciples, get in the boat, go on, you head out, and I'm going to um, dismiss them. 
Jesus dismisses the crowd, and it says, After he dismissed them, he went up onto the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So you have this two kind of two setting stories starting to unfold. You've got Jesus on a mountaintop praying. He's working through talking, praying to God. And while simultaneously about six miles away from where Jesus is, is a group of disciples, his followers, all in a boat, working as hard as they can with the wind blowing against them. And so it says that shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. This is that moment where it's a little extraordinary, right? This is perhaps one of those sentences that maybe you've read before that you're not even sure you believe. How can someone just walk on water? That's extraordinary. And the answer is yes, it is extraordinary. It's not natural. It's supernatural. It's something that goes beyond the scope and bounds. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I think our brain, we can kind of butt up against that and I don't really grasp and understand how someone with that kind of ability, how somebody can just, I've looked at pools and wanted to walk on them and it never worked for me, right? But I, I kind of imagine it's, it's like when I take my car to a mechanic, they have an insight, they have a knowledge that goes beyond what my knowledge is about my car and what I bring them, no matter where it is and what form it is, they're able to take it and do something extraordinary with it. They can repair it. They understand how it works. And because they understand how it works, it puts them in a position to use it. Or if you've ever seen people um, in one of my undergrad courses, I took um, programming and uh, computers. And you would sit around these individuals who could take these programs and make it do things the program was never intended to do. Why? Because they understood the code. They had a capacity that was beyond what the average user had. And so they could make the program and the app do things it was never intended to do. Why? Because they had a knowledge and a power and access to it. And Jesus is in some way, as God, has that ability. And he says he's walking on the water and he's on the lake. And it says, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified and they screamed, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. So think about the, just the tension of those two, the day and the night. The day they watch five McFish sandwiches feed 25,000 people. They listen to Jesus preach incredible messages, transformative truth. And it's like, this is the best day ever. Aren't you so glad we walked away from our jobs to do this? Because Jesus is a rabbi. And as a rabbi, he has uh, followers in first century Jerusalem. What would happen is a rabbi would invite people to come and follow him. And the idea is that if I want to become a follower of a rabbi, I I don't just want to hear his teaching. I actually want to follow him around and see how he lives out his teaching. But there was a, a blessing that would be said in the religious communities of the first century Jerusalem. May you be covered by the dust of your rabbi. In the sense that you were so close to the rabbi that you were following, that literally the dust that would be stirred up as he walked down the roads would kind of cover your clothing. And so these guys have left everything to follow Jesus. Because they want to be a follower of who this man is. And they're like, this is incredible. He just fed an entire city on five McFish sandwiches. Then less than 12 hours later, it's the middle of the night and they're in a horrible storm. Now this boat that they're on is probably a little bit larger than a sailboat, but not much larger. There are no navigation green and red lights. 
There are no internal LED bulbs that they can hit. It is pitch black. They're in the middle of a storm. They have been rowing for nine straight hours, and they're still not made it to the other side. They're physically exhausted. They're, they're emotionally exhausted. They are spent. They're tired. They're sleepy. The only time that they have any gust and, and brightness of flash is when the lightning sparkles and ripples across the water. That's the only time they see anything. So you can kind of almost picture it in your mind. Here they are. They're exhausted and they're spent and they're rowing as hard as they can and flash and flash. And in the midst of the flash, there's a figure. Then another flash, and that figure is getting closer. Then another flash, and the figure is getting closer. And they do what all of us would do if we're being honest with ourselves. They scream. You see, in this culture, like many other cultures around the world today and throughout history, the Jewish people believed that if you were about to die, that you would see an omen of death. And that for the Jewish people, why there are certain cultures that believe the raven was an omen of death, for the Jewish people, they believed seeing a ghost was an omen that you were about to die. This is why they're interpreting this. This is why they're screaming. Because that figure walking towards them that they think is a ghost is a clear sign that they're all about to die. Terrified doesn't quite do it justice in the English. And it says, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. There's another way this gets translated in the English and some of the other English versions where it says, take heart. And uh, the reason that those two words are interchanged, take heart and take courage, is because the way we think about courage in the English language is tied to the way it gets translated. The word courage actually comes from the Latin word for heart, right? Which is, if you think about courage and core and cardia, you can start to trace how for us in the English language, there is this belief that courage comes from the heart. We recognize that it's not the circulatory system because we have an idea of the heart that would have been very similar to to the first century world. When we say we heart you, right, and we draw I and a heart and you at the bottom, we're not saying I circulate blood for you, right? That's not what we're communicating. That's a little strange. We mean what? I feel these things for you. The heart is the center of feelings in the notion of this first century and even today in our society. And so the idea of heart and courage was that it was a feeling. You felt courage. Courageous people felt it. They felt something that most of us don't feel. Most of us know what it's like to feel fear. Most of us don't know what it's like to feel courage. And that's what most of us as English speakers, right, who've grown out of this context, we equate courage with an emotion. But when Jesus is approaching this boat, he does not say feel an emotion. He makes it he, this take courage Take heart. Um, in, in the actual Greek, it's an imperative, which is a command. I don't know about you, but I have a six-year-old little girl. I don't seem to have figured out how to make imperative commands about emotion. I imagine growing up, you probably heard something like, if you don't start, stop crying, I'll give you something to cry about. Right? I've tried as a parent of a six-year-old girl with a vast vocabulary of emotional language to command emotions, and it has never, ever worked. You can't command emotion. 
You react to emotions. You don't create them. And this is what Jesus is saying in this very subtle thing. He's making a profound statement that in the English gets lost on us because of the way we think about the word courage. If you think it's an emotion, you don't see this passage as powerful. But if you realize that Jesus is making a fundamental shift in how people think about courage, all of a sudden it clicks a switch. You can't command an emotion, but you can command a choice, which is the key. What he's saying here, he's telling them to take courage He's saying, make a decision. Courage is not a feeling. It's not a personality type. It's a choice. And that one choice, that ability to realize that courage is something that I can decide to have, not a feeling I hope I'll feel, actually is that missing essential ingredient that's needed to be poured into our bag if we want to start to shift and move towards a hero's lifestyle. Jesus completely, utterly redefines what the word courage is, and it changes the very circumstances of what plays out in the story. I'm a big history buff. I love reading, and right now I've been uh, working through a book uh, that uh, one of the segments is around Abraham Lincoln, and specifically the few years in the midst of the Civil War where he was president. And uh, what's extraordinary about the life of Abraham Lincoln is I have my growing up in school knowledge, and then I have what I have gotten after. In this book, I'm like, I wish every student read this book because it brings alive this really dark period, this great sin of our nation, of slavery, and what was unfolding in the mid-1860s that finally broke that horrible institution. And we take history for granted. Right? When, you, when you read history, you never think about World War II as not being won by the U.S. You always think that we win. The, the Germans, they lose every single time. And we can forget, unless you've talked to someone who's been in the battles, of how kind of perilous those moments really are. And, and that's what I've kind of worked through in this book I've been reading, of how perilous it was for our nation. You have to remember that 750,000 people lost their life during the Civil War. 750,000. One out of every 40 people in the United States and the Confederate States died. Which meant that there was not a single person alive that did not know multiple people who had passed away in that war. And what happens going into the 1860s that was new to me was the fact that While the North had a strategy, because there were more people living in the North, that they could outdie the Confederacy, the Confederacy had realized that we don't have to win the war. All we have to do is make it to November 1864. Most of the population of the United States was starting to get weary about the number of people they were burying. And around the 1960s, 63 into 63 into 64, there became a really concerted effort, a national sweep, essentially, where there was a a kind of a sense in this nation that the war just needed to come to an end and that the peace treaty should just be signed, that Jefferson Davis should be brought into Washington, D.C., and the Confederacy in the United States should just give up and live with the consequences and allow the Confederacy to exist as a nation, South, with slavery as an institution, and the United States existing primarily in the North, 
and Northwest without the institution of slavery. It gets to a point in August where Abraham Lincoln is convinced he's going to lose the election. He's still grieving the loss of his 11-year-old son and the devastation that that caused him while he was president in the White House and the the implications on his marriage with his wife and how that began to tear them apart in the midst of countless numbers of carriages being marched across Washington, D.C. for him to see every day of people being buried. The weight of it crushing and people just saying, Abraham, stop this war. And so on August 19th, Abraham Lincoln goes into his office and he writes a letter to Jefferson Davis saying, let's have a conversation to end this war. Abraham Lincoln, August 19th, 1864, is ready to end the Civil War and allow the Confederacy to stay and the United States to stay too. He puts the letter in his desk, and a couple days later, Frederick Douglass comes to the White House. That great abolitionist who had taken root in Boston, Massachusetts, and was raising his family, goes to the White House, and Abraham Lincoln says, I want to read you a letter, something I'm thinking about. And Frederick reads Here's Abraham Lincoln read the letter, and he says, Mr. President, you have taken steps to destroy this horrible institution that has plagued our nation since the beginning. Because of you, millions of slaves have become free. And if you stop, Mr. President, there are countless millions of men, women, and children living south of us who have not yet tasted what freedom feels like. You can't, Mr. President. You can't, Mr. President. And Abraham Lincoln, out of his conversation with Frederick Douglass, decides to put the letter back in his desk, and he never sends it. And in September 1, General Sherman finally breaks through in a six-week siege of Atlanta, and he begins what is the domino effect of the fall of the Confederacy and the surrender at the courthouse of Appomattox. And Abraham Lincoln is voted the president for a second term. And what makes the difference for Abraham Lincoln as you press into his life and as you look at this man is what was essential about him was his courage. Out of the conversation with Frederick Douglass, he looks up and he realizes that he does not care about the circumstances that he cannot control. He, as the president, has the ability to take a stand and to make the declaration to emancipate the slaves and to say to a watching nation and to another watching nation at war with them, that slavery is wrong no matter what, no matter what election that occurs. And this decision to make courage illustrates, I think, what is so powerful about courage that while fear on August 19th, 19th whispers into the heart and to the mind of Abraham Lincoln to stay in the status quo, courage calls him to take a stand and to press forward. That where the fear seeks to, to take over because of what the circumstances are saying. Courage says no and takes control of the circumstances and doesn't just take control, it seeks to transform it. The courage of one man literally saved this nation. I mean, think about the power of that moment and that choice of courage. And this is essentially what Peter experiences. He sees firsthand the power of courage to completely shift a circumstance. Why? Because in the midst of fear, Jesus, 
He says, okay, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Peter's like, I'm going to hedge my bet. If it is an omen of death, I want to make sure. I don't have a box for someone walking on the water. So he's like, okay, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come. If it's spirit of death, don't even worry about it. And Jesus says, come. And then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on water, and came towards Jesus. Think about that. How extraordinary is that? He walks on water. He's a fisherman. His entire life, he has always been on water, but he's never walked on it. He's always boated on it. I'm sure at certain points, especially as a kid, maybe he looked out and said, it'd be really sweet if I didn't need this boat. I could just step out on this thing. His entire life, he's known there's only one way you get on the water, and it's with a boat. That's status quo. And what does he do? He takes this choice. He makes this step of courage, and he steps on water. And probably, honestly, one of his most incredible sentences ever written about his life happens in that moment. I'm just saying, if I'm Peter, maybe he's far more humble than I am. But if I was Peter, every moment after every moment of that moment, I would be like, hey, my name is Peter. I walked on water. I'm sorry, is that your last name? Nope, that's just a description of what I've done. I I would be like early, I'd start, I would create tattoo parlors just to get that tattooed on me. Hey, I'm Peter. I've walked on water. I mean, I like, you know what I mean? I would want people to know every time, every time. We're sitting around the fire telling stories. Hey, guys, have I told you that story about that time I walked on water? Yes, you have, Peter. It gets old. I'm sorry, did any of you do that? Oh, well, let me tell it again then. There's something extraordinary. He's a fisherman who actually walks on the very thing that he's always boated on. It's extraordinary. His courage takes control of the circumstances and it transforms it. But it's not just Peter, it's not just Abraham Lincoln, it's you and I too. Courage is when the people pleaser decides to say no to someone who's asking them to do something that's going to harm them, hurt them, or rob them of life. Courage is the student who watches someone being bullied, who takes a stand for someone who's being bullied, knowing it could risk them being bullied too. Courage is that decision that even in the midst of being trapped in debt that says, you know what, I'm going to experience financial freedom. And they begin to take control of their finances instead of allowing their finances to take control of them. Courage is that individual who walks into a gym and sees a bunch of bodies that does not reflect their body and wonders, why am I here? It takes courage to step into this church with its weird music and its bald-talking pastor on a stage with lights and to to be open to the hope that comes. And, And it takes even greater courage to come back. It takes courage to sit across from your loved one in a relationship that has some things that are completely falling apart and to open your mouth and to say, we can do better. It takes courage to look in the mirror and to say as a parent that the way I have parented needs to change. It takes courage to be struggling with addiction, but to actually have the courage and choice to admit it. Right? I mean, in every moment, in every extraordinary transformation, 
It takes courage. That choice precedes that change in circumstances. Every single time. It takes courage if you're a Christian to start to lean in and to live it out and to practice what you believe. It takes courage if you're struggling with infertility to keep trying. It takes courage to pray to heaven when heaven does not say or respond and yet to keep asking time and time and time again. That takes courage, a choice to say what you've said time and time again because you believe somehow those words still matter and can make a difference. And it takes courage to, to live inside of this walled-off, emotionally distant palace that you've built. It takes courage to let the drawbridge down and to open up the doors and allow people in. It takes courage, if you're divorced, to step back out and to imagine what your love life could look like again. That like Peter, like Abraham Lincoln, that courage, the choice of courage always precedes an extraordinary change of circumstances. And that's why Peter steps out and he makes the choice to be a participant with Jesus, not a spectator of him. Eleven people stayed on that boat. Only one stepped out. But all 12 got the invitation. It is not in the text, hey, Peter, if you want to walk on water. It's the invitations for anyone. Yet only one makes the decision to step out. Because that first step is terrifying. That first step is overwhelming. It's hard to imagine how your marriage can be transformed by starting to lean into the heavy things. It's hard to imagine how you can become financially free while being trapped in debt. It's hard to imagine how you can move into a professional career that's vibrant and alive when you feel so stuck. It's hard to imagine you walking with joy and peace when you look in the mirror and all you see is chains and grief. It takes courage to say, I believe there can be better, and so I will step towards that. But that alone isn't enough. The choice, the first choice, isn't enough. In verse 30, it says, but when he saw the wind, Peter, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Peter makes the first choice to step out in courage. And while he steps out, in control of the circumstances, he starts to lose sight and he gets fixated on the circumstances. He sees the wind, he sees the water, he begins to be fearful, and he stops choosing courage. In 1961 and 62, Wilt Chamberlain had his most extraordinary season ever in the NBA. Wilt Chamberlain's considered to be one of the best basketball players in NBA history. He was an extraordinary strong man who could sit at half court and sink shots the way that most people could do it at the free throw line. But the challenge with Will, with Will was that he couldn't do that at the free throw line. In the midst of all of his incredible, incredible abilities, Wilt Chamberlain was a lousy free thrower. At certain points, his percentage would be 13%. And yet... Will, recognizing this, is trying everything he can do. At one point, Wilt Chamberlain's paying a psychiatrist to talk to him about his inability to make a free throw. 
Like this is how serious it is. People laugh at him. They're ridiculing him. And so he does something in 1961 and 1962 that causes him to have a 61% free throw average. In his record-setting game where he scores 100 points, he makes 20 out, 28 of the 32 free throws that he throws. And how does he do it? He does it by granny shots. This is Wilt Chamberlain. And the method that he's, he employs in 1961 and 62 to go from 13% at times to over 60%. Overnight, Wilt Chamberlain becomes a good free throw player. A man who'd been defined by the very lousiness of it is now being defined by his ability to do it. But then something strange happens. After 1961 and 62, that season goes over. He comes back the next year and he has a lousy free throw average again. Why? Because he stops doing that. He stops making granny shots. Years later, someone asked him, why did you step away from something that had transformed your game, Wilt? And he said, I got tired of people telling me I looked like a sissy. So I stopped. And I think what Wilt articulated, most of us wouldn't say out loud, but the challenge is, is that when you take a courageous step, there you will find there will be haters. There will be more people in the boat than out of the boat with you. There will be more people who would prefer you to take a step back so that they feel safe in their status quo than you stepping out in your new adventure of transformation. You will find it is easy to take the first step It is harder to take the second and the third. And that's the key that you have to realize. And what Peter demonstrates in his anti-example for us is that courage is not just one choice. It's a consistent choice that we make over and over and over again. And that if we desire to see the transformation in our life, in our marriage, in our finances, in our professional life, if we desire to see it affect us in the deepest part of our character, if we want to see courage override the circumstances that we find ourselves in, it will not happen with just one single choice of courage. It will happen when we start to make that decision of courage daily, when it becomes consistent Because here's what I know deep down inside of me, and I wager it's probably deep down inside of you too, is that all of us, we watch those hero movies because deep down inside, we want to have a life that makes a difference too. And over the course of this month, what I want to invite you to lean into with us as we work our way through this series is this simple but powerful notion that you and I can stop watching hero plays, storylines play out on the screens in front of us and start to see the hero storyline play out in the steps that we take as we move from being spectators to participants in a better, more heroic, more compelling storyline that we were all created to live. And it begins with a choice of courage.